Do you want to set your child up for success? Is tutoring out of your budget, or perhaps you're someone like me who just wants to save money on private tutoring? Is this a big school year for your child? You know, maybe they're starting kindergarten or middle school. Maybe there's another milestone coming up. Or maybe your family moved. Oh my gosh, I moved so much when I was growing up. And the kids are starting a new school. Or maybe your child is ahead and just not getting challenged enough in class. Well, IXL Learning is here to help. IXL Learning is a fun online learning program for kids covering math, language, arts, science, and social studies. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. That's right. It is school approved. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And how to be fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash fine. Visit IXL.com slash fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Again, that's IXL.com slash fine. Hello and welcome to How to Be Fine. I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jolenta Greenberg. In each episode of How to Be Fine, we weigh in on what's happening in the world of happiness, health, and betterment and offer a bit of advice to those who want it. Now, full disclosure, we're not psychologists or psychiatrists, but we are experienced self-help critics. We've lived by the rules of nearly 100 self-help books for our other podcast, By the Book, also right here in this feed. So we've tried on almost every kind of wellness trend out there. And besides, we're not here promising to make all of you the best, richest, happiest versions of yourself. If all goes well, we'll just help get you a little closer to feeling fine. Alrighty, Jolenta, we have a couple of great advice letters to get to later in the show. But first, as usual, we're kicking things off with our hot topic. And today we have a doozy that includes reality TV, a powerful cult, and self-help. Wow, wow. The powerful trifecta of all my favorites. Please <laughs> tell me everything about this cult self-help reality TV thing. Oh, yeah. Today's hot topic is the Duggars and the super conservative fundamentalist Christian ministry they were a part of, known as the Institute in Basic Life Principles, or the IBLP for short. Oh, yeah, the Duggars. The Duggars, like from TLC's 19 Kids and Counting. Yes, exactly. And they are back in the news because the fourth oldest Duggar daughter, Ginger, just published a best selling book. Becoming Free Indeed, My Story of Disentangling Faith from Fear. Ooh, that sounds very juicy. But before we go any further, can you tell our listeners some more about the Duggars and their TV show for uh, those of us who aren't that familiar with them? 
Yes, the Duggars are an Arkansas family headed up by Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar, who married when they were 19 and 17, respectively. They're members of the Institute in Basic Life Principles, an organization that claims to teach life skills based on biblical teachings. Of course, the IBLP isn't just a Christian organization. They're also an abusive cult, but we'll get to that later. The Duggars rose to fame in 2004 when Discovery Health first aired a documentary on them called 14 Children and Pregnant Again. More children and more documentaries followed, and by 2008, the Duggars had their very own TLC show, 17 Kids and Counting, later renamed 18 Kids and Counting, 19 Kids and Counting, and eventually Counting On. We're the Duggars. That's me. I'm Michelle. There's Jim Bob, my wonderful husband, and our children. Josh is our oldest. He married Anna, and they had our first grandchildren, Mackenzie, Michael, and Marcus. Then there's Jana, John David, Jill, she married Derek, Jessa, Ginger, Joseph, Josiah, Joanna, Jedediah, Jeremiah, Jason, James, Justin, Jackson, Johanna, Jennifer, Jordan, and our youngest daughter, Josie. Full disclosure, I have seen pretty much every episode of the show. I've also read hundreds of articles and books about the Duggars and the IBLP, including many in grad school as part of my studies, some of which we'll link to in today's show notes. I mean, it's true. Kristen knows more about the Duggars and their cult than anyone I've ever met. Kristen is to the Duggars as I am to the Real Housewives. Just (laughs) fluent. Yes. Now, the Duggar media empire, by the way, included way more than TV. They also had high-paying speaking engagements, videos, and self-help books, including ones on parenting, pregnancy loss, and navigating adolescence. Jolenta, you may notice, though, that I am speaking in the past tense here, and I suspect you know why. Right, right. I'm guessing this is the time where we give our listeners a content warning that sexual abuse will be discussed. That's right. The Duggar's oldest son, Josh, was involved in several sex crimes. The first series of crimes took place between 2002 and 2003 when he was a teenager. He molested five girls, four of whom were his sisters. Jim Bob, the patriarch of the Duggar family, told his acquaintance, state trooper Joseph Hutchins, And Hutchins let Josh off the hook with Justice Stern talking to, and Josh himself never actually went to a real treatment center. The Duggars sent him to an IBLP training facility where he just did manual labor. Notably, that state trooper I just mentioned, he himself was later convicted of child sex abuse crimes. Like, even the authorities are sex criminals in this story. This is very bleak. Yes, and it gets way worse. We're still at the beginning oh, no. here. Three years <laughs> oh. later, in 2006, the Duggars star was rising and they were scheduled to be on the Oprah Winfrey show, but the interview was canceled when an anonymous source tipped the show off to Josh's former transgressions. The <gasps> Oprah Winfrey show alerted the Arkansas child abuse hotline, but because of statute of limitation laws, nothing was done. The truth was kept quiet and the Duggars were allowed to maintain their image as America's most wholesome reality TV family. No. Yes. Oprah's involved in the story. I can't believe that. I know. I see your face, Jolenta. <laughs> My mouth is agape. Oprah is doing better than, like, what I assume is a mandatory reporter, a state trooper. Like, Oprah's already doing better than that, but still, it's swept under the rug. Yes, yes. Fast forward to 2015. In Touch Magazine, that's right, the celebrity rag, publishes a legitimate story revealing Josh Duggar's history of molestation. Josh expresses public remorse. A few months later, a security breach at Ashley Madison, that adult (gasps) cheating website, reveals Josh is a customer. 
Josh admits, yes, I've been cheating on my wife and I have a porn addiction. Additionally, a sex worker named Danica Dillon claims that Josh physically assaulted her during an encounter. All this after years of the Duggars, including Josh's wife, Anna, presenting themselves as the perfect patriarchal Christian family. Just focus on the positives because, I mean, there are times just like, oh my, he didn't take out the trash. But it's like, but you know what? At least I have a husband, you know, like he's working, like I could be out working and taking out the trash if I didn't have a husband. Meanwhile, the rest of the Duggars are kicking into damage control with all of this coming out. Jim, Bob, and Michelle, along with their daughters, Jill and Jessa, downplay the molestation with Megyn Kelly on Fox News. Again, this was not uh, rape or anything like that. This was like touching somebody over their clothes. Mm -hmm. There were a couple incidents where he touched them under their clothes. Um, But it was like a few seconds, and then he came to us and was crying and told us what happened. TLC fires Josh from 19 Kids and Counting. The show is renamed Counting On with the focus shifting to the Duggar Daughters. And we all celebrate these Duggar Daughters as they get married, procreate, and follow in their parents' footsteps with huge ratings. But, but, there's always a but, right? Yeah, of course. In 2021, Josh Duggar is arrested on federal charges of receiving and possessing child sexual assault imagery that he obtained in 2019. Investigators describe what they find to be the, quote, worst of the worst. By the end of 2021, Josh is found guilty and the Duggars TLC show is canceled. Since then, the older Duggar daughters have tried to position themselves as lifestyle influencers on social media and YouTube. They're shilling modesty swimwear, recipes, and parenting content. Meanwhile, many of their followers, including me, have wondered if any of them will ever publicly denounce the IBLP or their parents. Wow, wow, wow. And this is where we all start cheering for Ginger Duggar and her new book, right? Yes, it is. Good. Yes. This is the bright spot in the story. In her book, Ginger starts off by explaining the Institute in Basic Life Principles to those who may not be familiar with it. I know nothing about it, so please familiarize me. Tell me tell me everything about it. All right. So the IBLP was founded in 1961 by Bill Gothard, a man who's never been married or had kids, but whose teachings focus almost exclusively on those matters. Under his teachings, a strict hierarchy of divine authority exists with God at the top, followed by men, then women lower down, then children. And I bet that works out great for the women and children. Oh, you know it does. It always does in a cult, doesn't it? So Always. Here are some of the rules. Women must wear only long skirts, even when swimming and sleeping. Should a female be sexually assaulted, she must acknowledge how her immodesty invited it. Dating is not permitted. Instead, fathers oversee a chaperoned courtship for each daughter. Purity is of the utmost importance, with first kisses usually saved for marriage and weddings often occurring during one's teen years, like with Jim Bob and Michelle. Right. Once married, women must always be joyfully available for sex. Unless given explicit permission from their husbands, they're prohibited from receiving any form of medical, psychological, financial, or legal counsel. Should a husband cheat on or hit his wife, she must look inward at what she did to cause it. No. And wives are expected to birth as many children as possible. And in Ginger's words, that's even if it kills them. As for the children, they are to be homeschooled, higher education is discouraged, secular toys, dancing, most media, and any music with a beat are forbidden. And corporal punishment is encouraged even with infants. 
Jeez. And uh, how about the men? How how are their rules? Do they have to follow any? Is there just as big of a list? Uh, Well, the men, their main job is to provide authority, instruct Mm -hmm. their wives, stay Mm -hmm. out of debt, and based on the behavior of the IBLP leadership to abuse the women around them. In the 1980s, founder Bill Gothard's brother Steve resigned as administrative director due to multiple transgressions with female staffers that Bill Gothard, of course, covered up. In 2014, Bill Gothard himself stepped down after more than 30 women and girls accused him of sexual abuse that occurred Ugh. over the course of of many, many decades. Right. And hundreds of former members have gone on the record about the psychological and physical and financial abuse they endured at the hands of the IBLP. Oh, right. Because I bet the IBLP like wants all your money too. Oh, of course they do. Yes. Oh, wow. So Ginger Duggar is like drawing a line in the sand if she's writing about this in her book. She is literally telling all. Yes, she is. And she's also doing a few other things that I want to talk about first. Mm -hmm. She's sharing concrete stories from her own life of the shame and social anxiety she experienced under the IBLP about the psychological torment she went through. Here's Ginger sharing some of her experiences on the Tamron Hall show. I think a lot of families were sucked into this in the early stages because Bill Gothard promised a guarantee for success for your family if you follow his seven principles, then your life will be a success. And if you don't, he said that your life would be one disaster after another. And so I grew up thinking that God was waiting to get me at any turn if I stepped outside of any small box. So I was like in a car, I'd be terrified. I was terrified at one point when somebody turned on music with drums. And I was like shaking because I thought we're for sure gonna get in a car accident and die because he taught that. And so um, it's it's that type of fear-based Uh, teaching that just sends you into spirals of fear, anxiety, and just not knowing where to turn. Wow. Second, she uses the book to explain how her husband, Jeremy, helped to disentangle her from the IBLP. So fun fact, Jim Bob, in order to approve any man to court one of his daughters, would give the men a 50-page questionnaire to complete and force the men to watch IBLP training videos with the daughter who was trying to be courted. And in the case of Ginger and Jeremy, when they watched these videos together, Jeremy started asking some questions. Jeremy started poking holes in things. And then Ginger, for the first time in her life, also started to wonder, maybe everything's not on the up and up here. And then the third thing Ginger does with this book is in the final chapters, she essentially lays out a step-by-step self-help guide Anybody else out there who's trying to leave a cult like the IBLP, that's right. She's now a self-help author for how to leave a cult. Wow. So she went from like essentially evangelizing the IBLP lifestyle on TV for what, like decades to denouncing it fully and writing a like how to extract yourself guide. Uh, I'm curious Does Ginger also sort of denounce her family for raising her in this cult or her brother? Does she consider being raised in the cult itself like an abuse? Well, in her book, Ginger is very, very gentle on her family. She makes clear she loves her parents. This book is not written to say anything negative about them. However, she does mention that Josh 
is a hypocrite, just like Bill Gothard. That's right. She's saying that they're one and the same. He gives Christians a bad name. And she says she hasn't talked to him in two years, but she still prays for him. Well, so it sounds like she's still a Christian, but just not part of the IBLP and has no room in her life for horrible brothers. Yeah, that's right. After getting married, Ginger moved away from her parents and the IBLP and embraced Jeremy's version of Christianity. The two currently attend Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. It's a mega church. They go there with Mm. their two daughters. But I do have to note that Grace Community is not exactly a bastion of grace, despite its name. Just last month, an expose by Christianity Today revealed that church elders have routinely disciplined women who seek help in escaping their abusive husbands and fathers. That includes women whose husbands have been convicted of molesting their own children. Oh, my God. Ginger Ginger cannot catch a break with these communities she's a part of. It's so sad, but I, I do hope that, you know— she will continue to grow. I hope that she will continue to ask questions like she does in mm-hmm. her book. And, you know, she's still really young. She's only in her late 20s. And I, I have hope that she'll move forward. And who knows, maybe in the future she'll write another expose book, right. another self-help book about extricating herself from her current church. Who knows? We can only dream. Um, I do have one more question before we wrap up this Duggar conversation, Kristen. Has the IBLP acknowledged any of the accusations that Ginger or other former members have brought forth? Well, the IBLP has not responded publicly to Ginger's book, but more and more media organizations have been investigating them in recent years. Right. Amazon even has a documentary coming out later this year on them. <gasps> Ooh. And last year, NBC did a deep dive into them. And in response to that investigation by NBC, the IBLP posted the following on their website. In 2022, they said, we believe it is best for people to personally communicate their grievances directly so that resolution can be sought in a Christian way. If someone disagrees with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is their decision. But those who do believe in Jesus as Savior are also free to live according to the teachings of Jesus and to speak the truth in love. So in other words, like, stop telling other people about our abuses. Don't tell the world. Complain to us directly. And remember, Jesus is on our side. Okay? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Wow. 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 Well, I feel so much more caught up on the Ginger Duggar situation and the IBLP. I had been wondering why Ginger Duggar was in the news so much lately. So thank you. And also... I want to hear our listeners' thoughts about the Duggars and the IBLP. So hit us up. Are you a fan of 19 Kids and Counting? Are you a fan of Ginger? Have you read her book? Write to us at kristenangelenta at gmail.com, or you can weigh in at our very lively Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash kristenangelenta. Coming up, we hear from a letter writer who's concerned about a family member who received a painful diagnosis. All righty. We are back with our first listener letter of the day. Jolenta, what do they have to say? Our letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Jolenta, 
A close family member of mine has been diagnosed with a rare disorder that involves a lot of pain and discomfort, as well as a form of lupus that has been causing them a lot of pain and is beginning to affect them emotionally. When I give them space to share, they will, but then they will quickly dismiss their own experience by saying, well, people are dying and I'm not dying, so I shouldn't complain, or other similar comments. Any suggestions on how I can get this family member to stop invalidating their own pain? Oh, Jolenta. It's a tough one. I know you and I have a lot of thoughts on this, but yes, I want you to start first because I feel like you can probably relate quite a bit to the close family member living with lupus, being somebody who has lupus yourself. Right. Exactly. Uh, for our listeners who don't know, surprise, I have lupus. Um, I talk about it a lot in the last few seasons of By the Book, getting diagnosed, how it's impacted my life. And uh, it's been a struggle. So I can definitely relate to our letter writer's family member. Um, And my first point of advice is just to remind your loved one that even though other people experience worse things, that doesn't make what they're going through any less real and shitty, you know? Yeah. And also... Just keep in mind, letter writer, that accepting a new diagnosis and accepting that you're in for a life of struggle with the medical system and pain and accepting an invisible disability, accepting all that shit is really hard. It's a lot of things to kind of accept at once. And sometimes a little denial is involved. Sometimes it's a slow adjustment to being able to talk more frankly and openly about your struggles or to even like see them as struggles. I know that was the case for me. In my experience, uh, sometimes you have a total breakdown and realize all at once that you have to reorder your life in order to survive and work and shit. But like, it's not the easiest transition. So also having some patience with your family member while they sort of grapple with like where they are emotionally about where they are physically, like having patience in mind can help. And then also just remind them you're there for them whenever they do want to talk, because maybe someday they won't be able to downplay what they're going through. And it helps to know that, oh, off the top of my head, I have this loved one who always says I'm here no matter what. If you ever want to complain, I won't judge. Just keep letting them know that you are a safe place for when they're ready to complain or if they ever want to, because it will give them nice peace of mind for if they ever need to. I think that advice is so great. And I love that it is based in your own experience, Jolenta. If it's okay, I do want to also just offer an alternative perspective here too as somebody who also has had... As someone who's given care and support and helped me like during the roughest parts of my lupus, I think you're a very good uh, authority to speak on this. Thank you. I'm also speaking as somebody who has a couple of my own chronic autoimmune illnesses that can be quite painful, as you know, Jolenta. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I also want to add is perhaps this close family member when they explain to you what's happening in their life, because you say they they don't deny that they're going through this. They will tell you the things they're going through. And then at the very end, they'll say, but I know other people have it worse. So one thing I just want to say here is it's quite possible that when they are listing off all the things they're experiencing, that's their way of venting. That's their way of accepting. And then the thing at the end is their way of self-soothing. Because some people operate that Mm, way. And that doesn't sound like denial to me at all. To me, that sounds like self-soothing at the end. Like, I'm listing off all the things that happened. I'm listing off 
This doctor's appointment was frustrating. I learned this new thing. This thing hurts today. But you know what? It could be worse. May not be denial at all. And for some people, that really works best for them. I know a lot of people who function that way. I would say I function that way. I'm not right. in denial. Right, that is a very Kristen, yeah, yeah. Kristen follow-up yeah. to like some bitching. But it doesn't necessarily mean, yeah, they're in denial. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that I'm pretending I don't have pain. I've had plenty of pain, and I've seen lots of doctors and therapists. And some of them have made me very angry. And Jolenta has had to hear me bitch about some of these specialists before. I'm not in denial, but sometimes at the end of all of my bitching, I'll say, well, at least I have health insurance, <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. that's just another take. Just a little self-soothing thing. Maybe not denial. Yeah. Or as Jolenta said, maybe it is their way of slowly, gradually tiptoeing into their new reality. Because, you know, there could be a lot of reasons why your loved one is doing this. Yeah. So just be there for them like it seems like you already are. And you're nailing it. All righty, we're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, a listener wants to stop saving the best for last. All right, we are back, and now it is time to hit our second letter for the day. About emotional hoarding. What even is that? Kristen, enlighten us. (laughs) Our letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Jolenta, I recently realized that I do something that I've been calling emotional hoarding because I have no idea how to identify it properly. I first discovered I do this with food. If there's a favorite food item of mine in the kitchen, I don't eat it right away or ever, but rather save it because it's special. But I also do this with my aspirations. I somehow always feel I have to do menial tasks first before I dive into work that actually pushes me toward my career and life goals. Do you have any insights into this mentality? Thank you so much in advance. I think we can both relate, right, Kristen? Oh, absolutely. Right, right. I think maybe you more than I. Well, I have a big problem with this. Right. I'll I'll admit it. I feel like you're a, you like to self-withhold. Yes, I do. And I think part of it is because I was definitely brought up to, you know, get the menial work out of the way. You know, if you don't do that, your house will be infested with rats or, you know, your house will burn down or you won't have any money in the bank. Do the not fun thing first because that's the responsible thing. And then once that's out of the way, then you can focus on fun. I I, I was definitely brought up with that. But I also think I was brought up with something of a scarcity mindset. So the idea that you have to save this Mm -hmm. um, for later. Don't eat it all at once. Don't, you know, use up this thing all at once. And I'll say it's definitely come back to bite me in the rear. I'm going to give you an example right now of one that I've been thinking a lot about since we got this letter, Jolenta. Mm -hmm. And that is that Dean's grandfather, great papa, Jolenta, as you know, he was about to turn 103 and he died. So he lived a very long life. But before he died, he sent me and Dean a bottle of champagne for our wedding when we got married. And so that's six and a half years ago we got married. And we said, oh, what a beautiful gift, Great Papa. We'll drink it on a special occasion. And then he died. And Mm -hmm. we have never opened it. And Dean has repeatedly said, you published your first book. Let's open this now. And I say, that's not special enough. You and Jolenta published a book together now. And I keep saying, oh, no, that's not special enough. Um, 
oh, you appeared in this documentary TV series, and I'll say it's not special enough. And I keep saying it's not special enough. It's not special enough. And I realized one of the reasons I think it's not special enough is partly because of the scarcity mindset, like it'll disappear. Part of it's that fear of, am I really worthy of this? Right. Am I? I don't know if I'm worthy of this. But then there's a third thing in there, which is I sometimes fear this is the last we have of Great Papa. And once we drink the champagne, there'll be nothing left of him. But that's not true. Right. Great Papa's not in that champagne. That's something he bought. Great Papa is the memories we have of him, the laughs we've had, the photos. There's lots of great things about Great Papa that are not that champagne. And so I, I think that I had to spend some time emotionally exploring why did I keep holding off on that champagne. So that's one thing. But as far as the actual doing menial tasks before work. I want to talk about that too, because I think it's somewhat related, but not quite the same. And I think for me, it's partly because I feel like I have to be responsible first, but I also think it's partly because I'm a perfectionist. And the idea of doing menial tasks, sometimes menial tasks, let's face it, are easy. Sometimes it's much Ah. easier to just like delete those extra emails in my inbox. Sometimes it's easier to fold socks. Those things are easier to do than to follow our dreams sometimes, at least for me. They're easier than taking the risk. They're easier than writing the first chapter of a novel that may be complete crap, you know? And so sometimes it's easier. It's an easy cop-out, and it's a way of procrastinating on what may be imperfect if we actually do it. Right, and yeah. I think a lot of us, that's why we procrastinate. Sometimes we'll tell ourselves, oh, no, the tough work needs to be done first. The menial stuff needs to be done. Sometimes it doesn't need to be done. Sometimes I don't need to clean out my inbox at this moment. Sometimes I don't need to fold these socks at this moment. Maybe I'm just procrastinating because I'm afraid of doing it wrong. So it's kind of like Great Papa's Champagne, but slightly different. It's like that fear of like, is it going to be perfect? Right. And I'm just going to say something right now. It's never going to be perfect, and that's okay. That's the bummer part, but also the fine part. (laughs) Perfection doesn't really exist. Yes, it's totally fine not to be perfect, and in fact, nobody is perfect. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. That's the hard part where it's like we're holding out for something that's unachievable. Yes, absolutely. So I have done a couple of things to try and help myself deal with this predicament in my own life. Mm -hmm. Letter writer, maybe they'll work for you too. So one thing I've done is I have tried to start looking at the alternative. So by that, I mean, what is the alternative? If I don't drink Great Papa's champagne, the alternative is, and I did research, most champagne goes bad in two to 10 years. Oh. So if I keep putting off having the champagne and I do eventually open it, it will taste terrible. So it's like the alternative is let the champagne rot. And how does that serve me or serve Great Papa or serve my memories of him? It does nothing. Yeah. And here's another version of looking at the alternative. If I keep sorting my sock drawer instead of making that business plan or writing the first chapter of that novel, if I keep doing this menial stuff, where will I be a year from now? Well, Mm. a year from now, I'll be no closer to my dreams And will I really give a damn that my socks look better a year from now? So these are things I've done for myself. I've been trying to look at the alternative. If I keep emotionally hoarding 
what is this doing for me a year from now? What is it doing for me six months from now? So looking at the alternative has helped me a little bit with that. But Jolanta, I want to hear from you. Too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, while I cannot relate to the food part of this letter writer's letter, I have no willpower when it comes to anything tasty or delicious in front of me. I can totally relate to hoarding aspirations. And for me, I always come up with these like invisible benchmarks that I have to hit before I can like actually try making that TikTok series I've been meaning to do or actually sit down and write like that accountant back or whatever. And these benchmarks can be anything from like Kristen said, an organized sock drawer or, you know, something completely outrageous, like a whole new pitch for a whole nother podcast that I don't need to come up with, but like somehow decided I needed to before I like do a TikTok series for no reason. (laughs) Um, And so what I have found helps is questioning those benchmarks, questioning, do I really actually need to finish A to get started on B? How are they related? Are they related at all except like I made a random connection in my mind or does one actually come before the other? And sort of just questioning my initial impulse to put things off usually helps me realize like I'm just procrastinating, like ripping this creativity bandaid off or ripping this annoying business email bandaid off. Like usually it's just a way to sort of skirt around it or push it off. Mm -hmm. I also just want to jump in with a little bit of practical advice too that might help a little bit. If you feel like you have to do a bunch of things on your to-do list first, maybe Add that dream item to your to-do list. Put it between, you know, the socks and uh, washing the dishes. Put it on there, too, because your dreams are just as important. Add it to the to-do list. And, like, make a real to-do list. Sometimes that that even helps. Like, physically write it down. Not like a note on your phone, maybe. But physically write it down and be like, brush teeth, empty dishwasher, write first paragraph of novel, fold socks. Yes, yes, yes. Don't put it at the end of your to-do list. Don't just keep it in your head as an imagined thing you want to do, but add it early on to that to-do list. And as far as food, I just want to add one more action item here. So with Great Papa Champagne, the plan is we're going to find just a day where we're going to open that champagne and we're going to think about Great Papa and we're going to go in with low expectations. Like maybe the champagne isn't good anymore, but our love is just as great for Great Papa as ever. And to try and keep the moment special, but also lower our expectations for the champagne itself because it's not about the champagne. So maybe our letter writer can do that with some food here. You know, they can decide, oh, we're going to eat it on Sunday because Sunday, Sunday's a great relaxing day and we'll make brunch out of it. And, you know, we'll see what happens there with the food. Right. Yeah. Like, because we deserve it, not because like we got to hold out for like something amazing. Yeah, exactly. I like that. And that's it for this episode of How to Be Fine. Huge thank you to our production team. We love them. Our executive producer, Nora Ritchie. Our producer, Chantel Holder. Our editor, Gianna Palmer. Our composer and engineer, Casey Holford. Reminder, you can always weigh in on the conversation. The conversation is always so lively at facebook.com slash group slash Kristen and Jolenta. You can also write to us at kristenandjolenta at gmail.com. Just tell us how you're feeling. Tell us what you want help with send some comments our way. 
And if you haven't done this already, could you please rate and review our show wherever you're listening right now? Just look down, hit five stars, write a nice little review. It'll help people find the show. It'll help people know it's a good show. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jaletta Greenberg. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. And be fine. Every person who was over 70 had a show. Remember, there was like Matt It was Lock. Murder, She Wrote, was Murder, Matt she wrote. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like, we loved old people solving crimes. <laughs> Stitcher. 